Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Introducing their unique and very personal new book, Rendezvous with Art, Philippe de Montebello, past and longest-serving director of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and author and art critic Martin Gayford, explored what it feels like to experience pictures and sculptures in museums, galleries, and churches around the world. They offered their opinions and insightful reflections about outstanding collections and individual works of art, including those by Giotto, Poussin, Velasquez, Rubens, Titian, Vermeer, and Fragonard. Throughout their conversation, recorded on October 7, 2014, at the National Gallery of Art, Gayford and de Montebello addressed the modern challenges of seeing art. What makes up an art collection? How are works of art classified? How is art displayed? And how does that affect our perception and understanding of it? Good afternoon. Uh, I'm Rusty Powell, the director of the National Gallery of Art, and it is my great pleasure and honor to welcome my friend and colleague, still a colleague, Philippe de Montebello, Director Emeritus of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and author and art critic Martin Gayford. Uh, Their conversation today will focus on their new book, Rendezvous with Art. The book is organized around their journeys, which take them to the Louvre, the Met, the British Museum, the Prado, and the Palazzo Pitti, among other destinations. The volume records their conversations, opinions, and insightful reflections about both outstanding collections and individual works of art. Philippe de Montebello is the longest-serving director of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in its history. His retirement in 2008 was described as the end of an era in the cultural life of the city, the state, the nation, and the world. That's a big territory, Philippe. He is a member of the Académie des Beaux-Arts and an officer of the Legion of Honor and is now Fisk Kimball Professor at New York University's Institute of Fine Arts. Art critic Martin Gayford currently serves as London critic for Art Info. His publications include Man with a Blue Scarf, On Sitting for a Portrait by Lucian Freud, A Bigger Message, Conversations with David Hockney, Michelangelo, His Epic Life, and The Yellow House, which explores the nine weeks Van Gogh and Gauguin spent together in Arles. So now to our event, a conversation with Philippe and Martin. Thank you. Welcome. Well, uh, thank you. It's very nice to be here in Washington. And um, as that uh, introduction suggested, in a way, our book was, a, in a funny sort of way, was a travel book. We only traveled to galleries and museums. And, and churches. And churches. Well, we only traveled to places in which there was art to be seen. Um, and about at the point we started out, actually, it was on a fine fall day in New York about three years ago. We were walking through the Egyptian galleries at the Met, and Philippe stopped in front of the object which you see there on the screen, and he said, uh, This has to be one of the greatest works of art in the world. Which rather surprised me, because I, 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 I was uh, taken aback. I hadn't thought about that object before. And the extraordinary thing about it is, of course, that it's a fragment. It's, uh, it's the lower part of the head of, some, uh, of a sculpture 
of an Egyptian queen, we don't know who, uh, who, li who lived in the 14th century BC, I think I'm correct in saying. Yes, she's actually been called Nefertiti, but she doesn't have those features, but it's the same period in the New Kingdom. So we don't know who she, uh, who she represents, we don't know who made her. There's an awful lot we don't know about her, and yet it's still an object that excites you. Well, it's magical. Somebody made her. And this is something we have to remember about any work of art, anonymous or unascribed, whether in antiquity or other times, uh, someone made it. Um, the interesting thing about this head over and beyond, uh, the fact that it's simply divine, uh, is um, how affective the actual losses become as one engages uh, with the work, uh, reconstructing in the way the missing parts in our mind's eye, or not at all, simply focusing on the beauty of the lips. And if we know anything about jasper as a material, one of the hardest stones in the world, imagining that it's only with abrasives that anything quite so polished and so accomplished can be done is miraculous in terms of just our uh, faith in humankind once again. I used to say mankind, but I get corrected by my female students now. So it's humankind. Um, the other thing is always interested in the, the notion of the paradox of the fragment. Because in the end, if you think about it, uh, what is ephemeral is the whole. What has survived uh, until today is the fragment. So the fragment ends up being uh, the permanent aspect of the work. And then in the book, we discuss a little bit, or I do anyway, issues such as a favorite character in a book. And the last thing you want to see uh, is the movie where uh, the individual that you have for which you have formed an image has been fully formed in your mind. And here, I would be terribly disappointed, I think, to hear that an archaeologist found the top of the head. I'm sure it would not match my expectations. You don't want to see, you don't want to see how that head really should... Hmm? You don't want to see the top of it? I, I no longer do, no. Really? So we, uh, we start off with this uh, object because, in a way... Um, we felt our peregrinations were to do with fragments, that uh, so many things in museums are actually parts of larger ensembles. They're originally in mosques or temples or churches or palaces. What you're seeing is often a part of a whole. And extending the idea a bit, uh, the... Um, put the... the tombs. We started off in um, Florence, where we went to Santa Croce, which in a way is a place which is, has become a museum, but in which every, every single object was intended to be in that location. So we're looking here at the uh, mid-15th century tomb of uh, Carlo Massupini, I think, Desiderio da Settignano, and uh, how much would that lose, do you think, Philippe, if it were put in a museum? Well, it, it, it would lose and it would gain. And, and I guess that's the justification for maintaining museums rather than uh, tearing them asunder and redistributing everything in 
the object that originally held, if it was a cult, as in this case, the object themselves. But here, uh, you can't see it very well. And I, we recognize uh, that the screen is small, and these are essentially reference points for you. But uh, this very large tomb um, is an integral part of the architecture, not that it is coeval with the architecture. Uh, the tomb, of course, was created much later, but it was created for that particular spot, and there's no question that the sculptor uh, was conscious of uh, the uh, environment, the physical environment in which it would be sown, including the light. Uh, there are two little putti on either side of the gisant, uh, the, the figure of Marzio Pini, and uh, you would easily imagine them pinioned on a pedestal in a museum and you would admire them as a work of Desiderio da Settignano and the sculpture of Aputo. And you would have no notion of the fact that they were in, in, in reality a small element within an architectural ensemble. Um, Paul Valéry uh, said it very well ages ago about one of his sort of melancholic book about uh, museums. He was a museum skeptic uh, in which he said that, that works of art essentially have lost their mother architecture. Uh, that, of course, applies only to a certain category of works of art. Uh, but we, we deal a fair amount about, uh, in the book about the, the desacralization of art as it moves into the museum, and then the paradox of the, uh, the, the new religion of the museum in which one pays obeisance as if in a cultish way to the aesthetic nature of the work because all of a sudden the aesthetics uh, trump uh, the function and that's one of the big changes between a work in a church and a work in a museum. We also point out that we all now enter churches, not if we're going to mass, but you go to Venice you enter the Frari, and you don't do so, uh, you now do so with a, a museum eye, with a museum approach. You enter the Frari to see the great altarpieces of Titian uh, and other works, some of which we even had the wit to bring this morning. And in fact, uh, the Pesaro altarpiece, the great Assunta of Titian, very much conceived in function of uh, the church itself, in function of its architecture. And uh, the, the second image, those of you close by at least can see it, realize that Titian actually had in mind the jubé, what's that in English? It's the, the, so the choir screen. Uh, the, the choir, he actually conceived of the shape of his, of his altarpiece that you'd see it through the jubé perfectly uh, um, ironed out as if it were seen uh, through a frame. So it would be a great shame, you might think, for that picture to be in an art gallery, and even more of a surprise to discover that it actually has been in more than one art gallery, uh, which is, uh, actually makes another of the points that we uh, make in the book, which is that works of art have complicated lives. They have often more than one incarnation. They move around. As Philippe was saying, they can move from a sacred space to being uh, an object which people pray and worship in front of to being one in an art gallery which people admire and enjoy. That's one sort of movement. They also move around geographically. Uh, 
this, for example, uh, well, Philippe, you can tell this well, story better than I. It's difficult to imagine a work such as this. It's 30 feet tall, it's on panel, it's gigantic, it's just anchored into the Church of the Frari in Venice. But for more than 100 years, this is a work that wasn't in Venice at all. Uh, during the Napoleonic Wars, this was one of the works that was picked by Napoleon and Vivant de Nom, his curator, to be transported to Paris, part of the organized looting out of various treaties uh, from conquered territories. Uh, because of the defeat in Waterloo and the, and, 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 and the Treaty of Vienna and so forth in 1815, it didn't go to Paris, but then it became part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and the work then went to Vienna for a great deal of time. Then it was returned to Italy, I think around World War I, and it didn't go back to the Frari. It was put in the Museum of the Academia in Venice, and it's only after, uh, well after World War I, I think in 1919 or 20, uh, that it goes back to the Frari. So, uh, so it's, those are the multiple lives of the work of art, and there are innumerable examples, and it's, uh, it's interesting to understand that and what happened to them. The, the Napoleonic episode is actually very interesting in that uh, during the Napoleonic, uh, uh, the French War, Revolutionary Wars and the Napoleonic era, a great number of the most important works of art in Europe were concentrated in Paris in one great big uh, museum. And uh, actually the first time that Napoleon was defeated, uh, they were allowed to stay in Paris. It was, it was actually only after Waterloo that... Uh, the uh, victorious powers said, no, actually, you're going to have to send all these things back. And actually, it's a question, as, as a, wearing your hat as a Frenchman, Philippe, do you, do you feel sorry that, they all, that all those things went back, or do you think that it was, on the whole, a good thing that the horses of San Marco went back to Venice? Well, uh, the horses of San Marco, okay, it's, it's an interesting case, actually, the horses of San Marco. I don't know that we have a slide of them. Uh, you all know the horses of San Marco, even if I don't have a slide of them. Uh, they have a complicated life. They spent uh, a thousand years, just about, in Constantinople. They were brought to Constantinople by uh, the Emperor Constantine. They were installed um, there um, uh, in the Hippodrome, and it is only uh, during the Fourth Crusade in 1204, in fact, that uh, they were taken by the Venetians and brought uh, to Venice. And they were brought to Venice, unlike so many other Greek bronzes, they were melted down uh, to produce uh, uh, gunpowder and, 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 and coins and whatever, bronze was very valuable. Um, they were brought to Venice as a, um, a, a, a trophy, uh, as, uh, in a sense, uh, war booty, and they were placed on the facade of San Marco to um, uh, make the point that 
the, the Western uh, religion uh, has conquered the Eastern religion, that Venice is the new Rome or whatever, uh, and so many of the other spolia, the elements that were taken from Constantinople and placed all over the, the, the Basilica of, of, of San Marco uh, are a reflection of conquest and the new glory of Venice. But the horses of San Marco then go to Paris in a kind of a triumphant uh, uh, procession uh, of which there are uh, prints and engravings that demonstrate it, uh, a little bit in the way uh, that uh, on the Arch of Titus you have the, the, the procession with the uh, Arch of New Jerusalem um, uh, that is brought to Rome. And they are installed on the Arc du Carousel, not far from the Louvre. Then uh, they are returned to Venice, where they are a form of other triumph uh, and other trophies. And then they're replaced by the sculptures of the, the quadriga, which is what it's called, the four horses, done by the French neoclassical uh, artist Bozio. Uh, and there are still on the Arc Carousel. Then they return uh, to Venice. And then uh, recently, uh, because of conservation reasons, acid rain and uh, pollution, and the, um, uh, the pitting of the bronze and the disappearance of the gilding, they were gilt, they were brought inside San Marco, so they are no longer really um, uh, examples of triumph of conquest. In fact, the simulacra that have been put in their place are actual casts after the bronzes, but their patina makes them look like Nestle chocolate bars. I mean, they're perfectly awful. Although the act of bringing in indoors was correct, otherwise they ultimately would have been destroyed. So many different uh, concepts and lives. So where, where does the work of art really belong? In the case of uh, the horses of San Marco, which had, have had such a complicated history, there's no absolutely obvious answer, although I suppose we're all happy to see them in Venice rather the, the than period in, the period in Paris was too short in function of uh, the rest of its history to be a legitimate um, uh, moment in history. And so it, it's all right. If, the, if it were longer, I, I, I would argue differently. Well, that's a very delicately weighed answer. So another 50 years in Paris, and you'd have been saying uh, 70. Uh, we, we deal a lot in our book with the dimension of time, which uh, the... Uh, yellow jasper lips uh, started us off with. Um, time in various different uh, ways. Um, for example, um, Philippe is, uh, f uh, says on more than one occasion, and I entirely agree with him, that it is important to spend time with works of art. You can't just walk past them. You need to give the painting, the sculpture, time to make its impression on you? Well, um, that's true because the, the, the eye as an organ, and this is a great asset and a great flaw and a trap at the same time, uh, can see and apprehend an image in, well, the blink of an eye. You can walk past a picture in this gallery and uh, after a few seconds, you have seen the entire picture. If you're pretty good at it, you can actually describe it. But you haven't entered into the picture, into its world. And this is where, in a way, uh, the performing arts have advantage over us, 
which is you are compelled to stay in your seat and you want to hear a Razumovsky quartet. You do have to hear it seriatim, first movement, followed by the second, the third, and the fourth, in your seat for a period of 35 to 40 minutes, depending on who's performing it. Um, with a work of art, uh, it is too easy to apprehend an image, take your quick photograph, uh, and move on. Um, so how long would you recommend? Uh, <laughs> there the, the, an the, there's no magic formula. Whatever it is, it's longer than we devote to it. And this is where, in some of the major museums in the world, we have a problem when it comes to the most famous works, many of which are famous for very good reason, because they are great works of art. They are, as great works of art, very complex. They have a, multiple messages, and they have to be peeled like an onion. And spending time means that you're in the way of the next personal group coming through. And that's the great paradox of the museum. We want as many people as possible to enjoy and appreciate works of art, but not with us. Yes, we have a chapter entitled Hieronymus <laughs> We Bosch. want to visit the museum when it's, when it's empty at night, well, right, Rusty? Nice. Best time. As everyone else does. We have, a, we have a chapter entitled Hieronymus Bosch and the Hell of Looking at Art with Other People, which uh, was touched off by... Uh, we went into the Prado, and into the Bosch room, and uh, there were 25 people looking at the Garden of Delights and a rope in front of it, and Philippe said he'd rather look at a different... Hieronymus Bosch. Well, yes, because Hieronymus Bosch is, in fact, a very good painter, by which I mean not simply a creator of images, which is what you see when you uh, go online uh, in that pixelated world and look at the image and the details of the Garden of Delight. It's a wonderful image, uh, very inventive. But he's a wonderful painter, and if you go to the pictures in front of which you can actually stand for a period of time and also move fairly close where there is no stanchion, uh, then you, 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 you see the, you, and, and you have a feeling for the matière, for, for the application uh, of the paint. And there's a whole sensual surface to paintings. And if, if we were not, and are not sensitive to the, the, the I guess, I don't know the word for matière in English, but the surface of the picture, the brushstrokes and so forth, you might as well spend your life in front of a screen or with books. And, and this is the issue that you all have. With a few exceptions, there's this group. I would venture that all of you stand too far away from works of art. The further you stand from a work of art, the more you turn it merely into an image, into a piece of iconography and forms. One has to get close to an image. You have to get Rusty Powell to say to his guards, look, don't stop them every time they get a little too close. They're really looking carefully. I'll never forget my experience at the Frick, which has that sublime Bellini of St. Francis in the desert. And I stood in front of the picture for an eternity. It must have been three or four minutes, which is a long time in a museum. And I watched from the corner of my eye the, gar the guard approaching me, little by little. And after a while, he came to me and said, Sir, what are you doing? <laughs> he was concerned. So um, time is essential. Uh, a great work of art is a rich and multi-layered thing and simply cannot be apprehended uh, with the blink of an eye. 
One of the, uh, one of the problems with museums, so we, we obviously, Philippe and I both love museums. We, uh, you've written well, a whole book about... Up to a point, up to a point. <laughs> well, we've written a whole book about, which is essentially about us walking around museums and it, enjoying things, but we frequently, I suppose what we're saying about museums is, a, is similar to that uh, remark about democracy, that it's, it's a very bad system, but it's so much better than all the others. Uh, museums have their dilemmas, and one is that in a, in a really great museum such as this, you're spoiled for choice for what to look at. You, have to, you constantly have to decide, and uh, the great work can be the enemy of the good work. Well, it, it's easy, to, it, it's easy to, to condemn museums for creating situations where uh, you are compelled to make a choice among a great many things. Um, works of art are always in conversation in museums. When was the last time anyone in this room saw a work of art alone? I don't mean you alone, that's tough also. But the work of art itself is generally in contiguity with another work of art or several works of art. And what does that do? It pulls the work of art away from the uniqueness of the image and it, and it, it uh, uh, enters it into a narrative of sorts and a narrative that changes according to what, where uh, the work is placed. Um, it can be part of an art historical narrative in which you look at the chronology of a particular artist if the museum is rich enough to have several works or uh, within the context of one particular period or style and so on and so forth. But before we condemn museums for this profusion of works that assail the eye, just think of the Roman palazzi where they are hung from floor to ceiling and all over the place, and even in the churches for which they were created or the villas for which they were created, the works of art had assigned spaces, and those assigned spaces were not um, uh, like the Japanese tokonoma, uh, where you bring out only one, thing, one scroll, one work of art, one vase, uh, always uh, with other things. So the work of art, um, I think we mustn't do too, be too puristic about, uh, about where it lives. At the same time, if we really want to enter into its world because it is created by the artist in general alone as a single object, um, uh, then I think we have to make the effort to spend time and, and to in a sense forget uh, what the companions are saying about it and to it. Shall we look at something else? What? Absolutely, uh, you choose. I'll choose the Chimera of Arezzo, which is something which Philippe and I actually did have entirely to ourselves with, with Edith. It's in the Archaeological Museum in uh, Florence, which is a place unlike the Uffizi, which... We didn't go to the Uffizi. Partly because of the queue. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, I should say this about the book. Uh, it's not a comprehensive view of anything. The book is completely serendipitous. Many of its flaws are the fact that Martin and I didn't necessarily travel in the same place at the same time. Uh, we would have loved to be in Berlin, in the Amitage, at the National Gallery in Washington, but we weren't. Uh, we were in other places. I happened to be lecturing in uh, Amsterdam, so I said, come over, and we went to the Maurizois and to the 
and to the, well, not to the Rijksmuseum because in fact it was closed, it hadn't reopened at the time. Uh, and it, it's the happenstance of things. Uh, uh, what were we? Ah, yeah, the Chimera. So uh, in in uh, in in Florence, and I like out of the way places sometimes. There's a great archaeological museum, and uh, I wanted to see a few works, not least of which is this particular bronze, an Etruscan bronze of the seventh, sixth century, which I think is one of the great works of art. Again, and uh, it's amazing how much uh, we kept discovering about the work, coming back to it. Uh, we would look at it, we would talk about it, uh, and then we would move on to, to other things in this uh, fascinating museum. And then we would chance back uh, on the way somewhere into the, and then we'd suddenly look at the, uh, the, the treatment of the veins on the sub-belly of the beast. Uh, and then we noted, uh, because we had been to London to see the marvelous lion hunts of uh, the Assyrian lion hunts of the 8th century BC, and um, where the manes of uh, the lion, I think we have one of the lions, we had, right next to it? Yeah. Where the, actually we've, we, uh, I put the, the, the chimera next to one of the dead lions, and you see that the, the treatment of the mane uh, on both beasts is pretty much the same, even though there is no particular uh, direct uh, interconnection between uh, the world of, uh, of uh, Assyria and Etruria. But there is a flavor of the day, if you will. There is, in all periods of history, a moment in which, like international styles, uh, there seems to be a way of looking uh, that is idiomatic with that moment in time. And, uh, I mean, the lion hunts themselves we have a passage in the book in, in, in which Martin says, why aren't we going to see the, the Parthenon or Elgin marbles? And I said, well, I, I think they're among the great works of mankind, excuse me, humankind, uh, but, um, but you prefer the I always go, and I, I actually prefer and always stop in front of the Assyrian reliefs of the lion hunts, just one of those things. And that's an important part of the book, is that it basically says, you know, what you like is fine, what I like is fine, and nobody should be, feel guilty about anything. Because it, there's always a personal, no matter how scholarly and how historically we try and be about these matters, there's always a personal dimension and personal taste comes into it, how your mood at the moment comes into it, and that's, a, that's something we've accommodated in the book. We'd, one day we felt like going to see the Chimera in Florence and not the Uffizi, so that's the way it ended up. We, di we didn't try and be comprehensive. In fact, a comprehensive book in which we visited every great museum in the world would have been a very, very large volume, perhaps a series of volumes, and rather wearying for us to, to, to write and for, you, for anyone else to read. I was going to say that um, David Hockney, an uh, artist I've uh, written a, a book of conversations with, um, has a line about why things survive, which is essentially there are two reasons why things last. One is because they were made out of some substance so solid that it was very difficult to destroy them. And bronze, unless you melt it down, comes into that category. Um, so does yellow jasper, the, the fragments. The other reason is because somebody loves them. I, they're carefully kept and preserved. And in a way, museums and galleries are a sort of collective expression of love 
for uh, the certain things we all want to preserve. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's true with the expected variant that different generations obviously value things uh, very differently. Uh, there was a time, and this kind of thing is discussed in the book, in which the, the, the canon was the Apollo Belvedere, which is now preserved in the Vatican, you know, the standing man with the arm out and the uh, uh, drapery. Uh, and the Apollo Belvedere, through the time of the great German art historian Winkelmann in his first great history uh, of Greek art, was uh, the nec plus ultra. It was the work of art against which all others were to be measured. Then the Parthenon marbles land in 1812 or whenever it is in London, and all of a sudden, from one day to the next, uh, the Apollo Belvedere is considered a feat, uh, the greatest of all art, uh, as Canova, the great neoclassical sculptor, uh, mentions in London, becomes uh, the Elgin marbles. And uh, he even says, uh, if the Romans had been aware of the Elgin marbles, their art would be different. And he says, if I had, I, Canova, and you have a few wonderful ones in this gallery, had been aware of the Elgin marbles, I would have sculpted uh, differently. So museums have their own personality, their own character, and you can trace, in fact, like a palimpsest, uh, the different biases of different curators of period of many generations uh, in, in art museums. Something I wanted to ask you about uh, was how objects enter, obviously objects enter museums in all sorts of ways, people leave them to museums and so, but sometimes it's as a result of a direct decision by directors and curators. How do you decide this object ought to be added to the collection? What's the, what's the process of thought? Perhaps we could take the Duccio. Well, the we can talk itself. about the, the, the Duccio. Let me, let me answer the question first in a slightly uh, broader way. And I want to keep my eye on the notion that we want a lot of questions from you. Yes. And we've been speaking for how long? 35 minutes? Um, the acquisitions. If any curator or director tells you there is a strategy and a policy of acquisitions, he is lying. There are obviously wish lists, but the acquisitions process is by definition serendipitous. It depends on the availability of works of art on the market. It depends on the particular proclivities and taste of the members of the staff. It depends on the money that is available. Uh, it is tied to all sorts of uh, non-grand design uh, issues. Uh, I speak at length in the book about uh, the little Duccio uh, that was one of my last purchases as director of the Met in 2005 or six. Uh, the Duccio was bought. And the, the fact that um, uh, it was offered for sale, it's a small work, it was the last Duccio that we knew would ever be available. We know that there are at least recorded, as far as anybody knows, no Duccios left to be bought anywhere or any left in a private collection. So uh, even though the price was colossal, certainly per square centimeter, uh, this Duccio was uh, something that I felt the Metropolitan had to have. And a lot of things entered into this. Uh, a form um, uh, of almost libidinous uh, 
lustful desire to acquire and have the work. There was the element of competition because the Louvre, which is the only great museum in the world that does not own a Duccio, uh, was desperate for it and they'd visited uh, the dealer several times to see the work. So I knew that we were in a race against a great museum that would be able to raise the funds to buy it. Uh, there was the confidence that was given to me. I am not an expert in uh, early Quattrocento or, or late Trecento painting. Um, uh, and uh, the, the, the knowledge that was presented to me by a curator, in this case Keith Christensen, in whom I believed so firmly was very helpful. Uh, but helpful also was uh, the, uh, something that I'm afraid I cannot share, and museum people cannot share with audiences, which is the ability, uh, when I was in London, the picture was in London, to hold it in my hands, to feel its weight, to turn it around, to, 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 to uh, embrace it as a physical object, which the work is. And that, that intimate relationship, um, uh, almost a, a, a human loving relationship that one has with the object is very important in the work of a curator. Look at curators of drawings who are able to handle these drawings, turn them around, um, smell them, look at them in, in, in whatever way, uh, sculpture, whatever. Uh, so all of this put together um, led to my making an immediate bid uh, for the painting. In fact, higher than what I was authorized to do, and under normal circumstances, I probably should have been fired. But uh, what is interesting about uh, an acquisitions committee uh, of a board sometimes, when it is enlightened, and that certainly was the case at the Met, is that when I fessed up, as my kids might say, uh, they said, but you did the right thing. And if you hadn't simply following protocol, the picture probably would be at the Louvre. So, as a Frenchman, I hope a great Duccio one day surfaces and the Louvre buys it. But I'm very happy this one is now at the Met. That's something obviously museums have to forbid, is that tactile aspect of works of art. Nonetheless, you ought to remember that a lot of works of art were intended to be held and touched. And um, Well, for example, uh, I, I remember Lucien Freud in his sitting room had a little Degas bronze and he would run his hands over it and say that it felt very good to the hand, a little, a little nude, and um, that actually sculpture, particularly that kind of hand-sized sculpture was intended to be felt. Now it's in a museum, it was, it was part of his uh, bequest after he died, so of course the, the attendants will quite rightly forbid any member of the public from doing, from running their hands over it in that way. Um, but it, that's something which is, we have to lose in a way. Um, the question, uh, another aspect of the question of time is um, how, do, how do objects such as um, these lion, uh, the lion hunts or the chimera it seems like it's sort of miracle, really. How do they speak to us over millennia? How do we uh, get in communication with the, uh, with the man, with the person, the human who made them? Um, despite the fact we know almost nothing often about their purpose and why well, they were, when they were made, even? I, I think that's what is traditionally called the universality of the work of art. 
that it speaks uh, across millennia, that if it really um, has explored and expressed with uh, enormous um, effectiveness uh, the purpose of the artist, uh, it will speak uh, across time. Um, the work of art uh, is forever uh, alive. Uh, it was at one point, of course, contemporary. Um, there is another aspect when you talk about antiquities, and I think you were making the point about antiquities, and uh, I don't want to be too professorial, but um, um, there's a gentleman by the name of Aloysius Riegel, who is and was around 1900 the head of the art history school in Vienna. And he came up with an interesting concept, which I think has proven to be true, and I think uh, most people tend to agree with it. He speaks of Alterswert, the German for um, uh, the, the value of age, that uh, we all value to a certain degree age. Uh, and the older something is, the more we have a certain attachment for it as a monument, as a monument uh, that has survived, the whole survival uh, through the ages. Look, for example, at fragments of pottery that are displayed in archaeological museums or places like the Met, uh, which is antiquities, um, and they are in vitrines along with full-fledged uh, sculptures. Um, and why are they in these vitrines if they wear uh, the same fragments of the same utilitarian object today? Uh, they wouldn't even be in storage, they'd be thrown out. But this object, because it has come down to us through the millennia, acquires that alterswert, that, uh, that value through, through age that we all feel. Uh, Riegel goes further. We mentioned this, actually, I mentioned this in the book too, uh, and he refers to monumentswert, which is the, the value of the monument. There is, for example, at the Met, uh, in one of the vitrines, an egg and dart marble. An egg and dart is that, that relief that you find um, with an egg and a dart, literally, uh, that follows each other uh, as part of cornices of ancient buildings. And there is a fragment, very beautifully carved in Pentelian marble, of an egg and dart in between in the Met. And under normal circumstances, you would apply your age value to it and say, isn't it remarkable that somebody carved this with so much delicacy in the 5th century BC? And then you look at the label, and it says, fragment from the Erecteum. Now, the Erecteum is one of the great buildings on the Acropolis. It's the one with uh, the standing uh, figures holding up uh, the building. They've now been moved inside with the horses of San Marco and these are casts. But the moment you know that these, these egg and darts are from a famous building, all of a sudden you, you feel something differently. You change. We all change according to how we feel and what we know about a work of art. Does it matter if we, if we get it wrong? I, I'm thinking about that Assyrian lioness. Uh, we actually, I think we don't know how an Assyrian would have responded to that, looking at it. We look at the lion and we think, you know, it's pathetic, it's tragic, it's dying. Perhaps the response of the Assyrian was that it's a wonderful thing that the king has managed to kill this lion. It's an expression of power, but that's just a guess. Does it matter? 
No, I don't think it matters. Um, on a certain level, depending on... I mean, there are different ways of looking and different purposes of looking. I mean, if you are studying the work and you are going to prepare a, a volume for publication, it does matter. You have to try to get it right. Uh, we can never relive uh, the world um, uh, of another time. We cannot be a bravo in the streets of Siena or Florence uh, in the Quattrocento. Uh, there are wonderful pages by uh, Baxendall, uh, the English writer, about uh, this impossibility to go back in time. But it is still our responsibility to try as much as possible to understand works in their own context and through um, texts and so forth up to a certain level and comparisons and connoisseurship, it is possible. But we all reinvent a work of art and a work of art is, is alive and is a different word, work according to the retina that happens to uh, rest upon its surface. And that's in a way what, a lot of what the book's about, how we're reacting to things on, on that particular day. Um, do you think the time has come for us to throw the floor open to some questions? Is any, if any, does anyone have a question? Uh, two quick questions. Uh, I've read your book about sitting for, for Lucian Freud, yes. uh, <clears throat> but uh, I would love to just hear uh, in your own words uh, something about that experience. And secondly, as a psychoanalyst, I ask, did the intensity and length of time that you were being not just watched but in conversation resemble in some way what you could imagine what his grandfather did in, uh, in, in, in unearthing and revealing layers of one's psyche? Uh, well, I must admit that there were moments where the, I think uh, one of Sigmund Freud's uh, books is entitled Analysis Terminable and Interminable, and there are times when, uh, as this process of sitting carried on for about eight months for the, for the painting and then another eight months for the etching, when one wondered whether it would ever finish. Um, I, I think there obviously was uh, an analogy between what Lucien did and what his grandfather did, but it was one that Lucien didn't, very strongly didn't want to think about, which is, in a way, rather Freud in itself. Uh, his, uh, he... Um, uh, he, he, what, he, what he used to say about his grandfather was that um, his relationship with his grandfather was very straightforward. He loved his grandfather. It was other people's relationship with his grandfather which caused trouble. And I think it caused trouble for him because uh, when he was younger, people tended to take the view his trading on the, his famous name. So he, he wanted it in a way out of the way for that reason. Um, but also, I think it must have been psychologically very difficult for him to grow up as an individual, as an artist, with such, such a tremendously towering figure in the family. So I think he'd probably shut it out. But um, yes, it, it did feel a little bit like, I, I suspect, a little bit like being in analysis. What one, one, um, the one uh, Freudian remark which Lucien would say he's definitely... Well, two things his grandfather said he, he, he absolutely swore by. Uh, one was that there's no such thing as bad weather, only unsuitable clothing, which is not, which is not entirely <laughs> psychological. The other one was that there's absolutely no such thing as an accident. So, so when he accidentally locked himself in, the, in, in his garden on Christmas Eve, uh, 
an 82-year-old man in sub-freezing conditions, he thought his first thought was, why on earth have I arranged this for myself? Under the category of experiencing art, I'd like to know what you think about people talking in loud voices as they're experiencing art. I was brought up that a museum was like a public library. If you spoke at all, you spoke in as soft a whisper as you could muster. And now you're hearing what any, everybody else thinks about the art and sometimes what they're having for dinner. You know, I... Um First of all, I, I'm not sure it's that different today. Um, I, I tend to be rather tolerant under certain circumstances. Um, and in the end, I think one just has to find a way to elide those things, noise, all visual problems. I mean, I find people standing in front of works and taking a selfie uh, extremely annoying in museums, but you have to accept, I think, uh, the ways of every generation. Uh, the, the galleries of the Louvre are intolerable with half a dozen groups of 50, 60, 70 tourists who you know are not there to look at works of art but to check off the Louvre, the Eiffel Tower, the catacombs. And um, so uh, they're, not, they're, they're there because they are compelled to be there uh, and their guide is loud. Um, yes, it's a disturbance, it's an annoyance. Uh, coughing in a, uh, in a concert hall is an annoyance. It, it's simply part of the experience. The, the moment you open up uh, a museum, a gallery, a palace, whatever it is, to the public, the public will react according to their own mores. And uh, uh, yes, we'd all like perfection, but I must say, um, um, I have always found, and, and one of the things I used to do very much at the Met is to observe people in, in, in galleries. It was very important to me. Uh, and in, in function of how you presented the collections. Uh, beyond uh, certainly the noise, I would watch people. Let, let's say uh, in the gallery of 18th century, there's a small painting at the Met, uh, which is called the Mezzotins by Jean-Antoine Watteau. And to me, it's one of the great pictures of the Met, but it is small. It doesn't command uh, or attract you uh, with the blaring sound of trumpets. And um, whenever we rehung the galleries, I would watch, did people gravitate towards it or not? And if people didn't, uh, I would arrange to rehang the gallery uh, because clearly it needed to be elsewhere. And if the center didn't do the trick, then at one point we would pinion it on a pedestal and that worked that well. So watching how people react and where they go is important for us in, in how we present works uh, ultimately. Uh, I'm surprised a little bit by the question because I've never, never been that conscious of, of that much noise. I find, on the whole, I have a great respect for the public, our audiences, um, uh, and I find that uh, there is a certain deference uh, which is um, to be observed in the way people conduct themselves in galleries. So, on the whole, I have nothing but 
um, certain praise for uh, perhaps categories of people who elsewhere do not behave as well, but I think on the whole people behave well in museums. Thank you. This has been the National Gallery of Art Podcast. 